Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading, Denver home sales plummet far beneath industry predictions as median home price reaches $600,000 by Kyle Harris. And, former Republican candidate and bankruptcy attorney Brad Dempsey takes the helm at tattered cover, for now. Also by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading, Club Q Shooter Takes Plea as Victims Demand Money Raised by Colorado Healing Fund by Katie Cheshire. And Denver Will Clear Low-Level Arrest Warrants at Saturday's Fresh Start by Benito L. Kelty. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Denver home sales plummet far beneath industry predictions as median home price reaches $600,000 by Kyle Harris. Denver realtors had a rough spring in what's normally a high point for home sales. The number of homes on the market in June was lower than anybody expected at 6,070. Still, there have been fewer on the market in recent years and inventory is up more than 16% from May. In part, the sluggishness comes from a drop in new listings as homeowners hold off on selling. The primary factor driving this trend is the disparity between sellers' existing mortgage rates and the prevailing market rates, according to realtor Steve Dennelly of the Denver Metro Association of Realtors' latest market trends report. High interest rate on mortgages in 2023, between 6 and 7%, have kept many people out of the market. The industry hoped rates would drop closer to 5%, but they're nearing 7% again, offering home buyers little hope that the trend will change much by year's end. All of this means fewer sales. The number of closings has dropped more than 21%, leaving the industry, which underestimated how few sales would take place, uncertain about the months to come. The current median home price, including both houses and condos, duplexes and other multi-unit properties, is $600,000, down more than $11,000 from this time last year. Those prices are expected to drop slightly by the end of 2023. Bidding wars were down considerably, noted realtor Libby Levinson-Katz, who chairs the DMAR Market Trends Committee. One reason bidding wars are down is because buyers are far more discerning they want to negotiate and feel as though they are getting a win in a landscape with rates hovering around 7% and construction costs soaring. Because of those high construction costs, homes in disrepair are languishing on the market, she said. Buyers want homes that are cl as close to perfect as possible in direct relationship to price. Former Republican candidate and bankruptcy attorney Brad Dempsey takes the helm at tattered cover. For Now, by Kyle Harris. Bankruptcy attorney Brad Dempsey, who ran as a Republican for Ed Perlmutter's seat in the 7th Congressional District but failed to collect enough signatures to make the 2022 ballot, will take over as Colorado Independent Bookstore Tattered Cover's latest interim CEO. 
Dempsey, who has not been a major player in state politics, failed to collect enough valid signatures and then sued Secretary of State Jenna Griswold for a slot on the ballot, arguing her ruling was wrong. The suit did not work, and he did not appear on the ballot. A seasoned bankruptcy and restructuring attorney, Dempsey has been working on helping Tattered cover with its financial woes. The half-century-old company has suffered serious economic blows in recent years during leadership transitions, boycotts over how it handled the Black Lives Matter movement, worker discontent, and a pandemic that has shaken retail. Dempsey acknowledged the company's financial troubles to the Denver Business Journal, which first reported the news of his hiring. He did not respond to immediate requests for comment from Denverite. He'll be taking over day-to-day leadership operations from Margie Keenan, the chief financial officer, who took over day-to-day leadership but did not assume the CEO title after then-CEO Kwame Spearman entered the highly competitive Denver mayor's race. Spearman's time in the position was marked with initial hope and then controversy as complaints from workers rolled in. Spearman, who professed a law and order politic, drew criticism from customers as he was running for office. Longtime progressive shoppers threatened boycotts over right-of-center positions he took during the race. At the same time, an anti-vaccine author falsely tweeted the store was not carrying her book, a claim former Republican gubernatorial candidate Heidi Ganahl amplified, causing threats of boycotts from the right. In the last weeks of the general election, Spearman withdrew his candidacy after securing a spot on the ballot to support second-place candidate Kelly Bro. Spearman, who left his role at Tattered Cover soon after, is currently running for a Denver school board at-large seat. Dempsey's hire suggests the board of directors, a who's who of the city's business establishment, is committed to quickly turning finances around and addressing debt to publishers. A quick look at the Tattered Cover Colfax branch's shrinking collection of books shows just how dire things have become for the legacy store that has championed the First Amendment, hosted some of the world's greatest authors, and has been a reliable place to find hard-to-get books, until recently as the stock on the shelves has dwindled. Book lovers citywide will be closely watching Dempsey to see if he can save the business, something Spearman promised to do when he took over. The following articles are from Westward. Club Q Shooter Takes Plea as Victims Demand Money Raised by Colorado Healing Fund by Katie Cheshire. On June 26, just over six months after a shooter killed five people and injured 17 others at the Club Q nightclub, the killer pleaded guilty to five counts of first-degree murder and 46 counts of attempted first-degree murder. Club Q is a gay club in Colorado Springs, and Anderson Lee Aldrich also faced bias-motivated crimes charges. Aldrich pleaded no contest to those charges. There is still a federal investigation that could lead to hate crime charges with a possible death sentence. For now, Aldrich is serving five consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Adriana Vance is the mother of Raymond Green Vance, one of the five killed on November 19, 2022. She says that she's glad the situation was resolved with a plea agreement rather than a trial, because now she can retrieve her son's belongings. And it's not like any court process could fix what Aldrich did, she notes. 
At the end of the day, it still doesn't bring my son home. John Arcidiano, a bartender who was working at Club Q that night, agrees. Despite the sentence, there was no formal apology from Aldrich or real closure for those impacted. That was the overall general consensus that most of the survivors got, Arcidiano continues. It was just not the ending we were all looking for, the ending that we expected. Both Vance and Arcidiano addressed the shooter in court on June 26th. I wanted him to hear my voice, Arcidiano says. One of the statements I said was, Mr. Anderson, just know that you have not won. This has made me want to be stronger, prouder, and louder as a person in the LGBTQIA community. But the plea isn't the end for everyone who was affected, Arcidiano acknowledges. They still need to process their traumas and heal. And as they do that, they're still pushing the Colorado Healing Fund to release money collected for them after the shooting. The Healing Fund is a nonprofit organization kick-started by the Colorado Attorney General's office when Cynthia Kaufman, who is now CHF's board chair, was Attorney General. Starting in 2018, it's been activated for mass tragedies in the state to collect funds for the victims of mass shootings and then work with partner organizations to distribute them. But survivors and family members of those who were killed in shootings ranging from the 2021 Boulder King Super shooting to the Club Q incident in November of 2022 say that CHF's process is invasive and overly cumbersome as they deal with the grief and trauma of these tragedies. At first, Vance says, the help came quickly. She lives in Colorado Springs, and funds were immediately available to fly family members in from places like Mexico and Chicago to attend Raymond's funeral. Since then, however, she's had a harder time accessing money that she really needs. Adriana and Raymond had split the rent at their Colorado Springs apartment, so she applied for rental assistance to cover her son's half, as well as some of the wages she lost after missing work when her son was killed. She says that because aid was delayed for months, she narrowly avoided an eviction notice. From my understanding, they were going to collect this money, they were going to dis disperse it to the people who needed it to be dispersed to, and we were going to move on, she says. Then it comes out that that's not the case. They're trying to find ways to keep the money. They're raising fees, making you submit proof. I don't understand that part. Late last year, CHF had caught flack for taking 10% of donations to cover administrative costs before an anonymous donor stepped up to cover those costs for the Club Q response. Kaufman points out that the paperwork survivors are required to file comes from the partner organizations with which CHF works to disperse funds. The documentation is important, she says, because CHF needs to make sure those claiming aid are actually victims, and the organization needs to properly account for what happens to each dollar. In the case of Club Q, the partners are the Colorado Organization for Victim Assistance and the Community Health Partnership. And there were three or four people who claimed they were at Club Q that night but weren't, Kaufman notes. We feel that it's incumbent on us to do a good job of assuring that the money gets to the right people, she says. Vance and Arcidiano agree with that principle. Vance says the CHF process was very secure. But for those who are really impacted, the requirement to divulge every aspect of their finances and prove they need what they need 
just doesn't make sense, they add. They believe survivors and victims should simply be given the money and trusted to make the right choices about how it's used. It's like these people do not understand that everybody's going through their own grieving process, Vance says. Then we have to be going to different locations, to go speak to different people, to talk about how these people are not giving us what we're owed. Club Q victims have held multiple press conferences calling on CHF to release funds to them without further delay. The most recent was on June 20th at Colorado Springs City Hall, as rumors were flying that the shooter had taken a plea. Three days later, CHF announced a new disbursement of $811,400 to the Club Q victims. It had previously dispersed just over $2 million of the $3.2 million collected. It's now holding approximately $300,000 in reserve for intermediate and long-term needs for victims. According to Kaufman, the timing of the disbursement, coming right after the rally and right before the plea, was a coincidence. It had been in the works for a period of time, and I'm happy that there's a plea deal at the same time, she says. Arcidiano says the $800,000 disbursement felt like a win, but that the $300,000 CHF is still holding onto seems excessive, and he doesn't want to see any of those funds going to a resiliency center like the one created in Boulder after the King Super shooting. Arcidiano was hit with shrapnel during the Club Q shooting, but the deeper wounds are the mental ones he sustained from hearing screaming and seeing his friend Derek Rump die. From the recent $800,000 disbursement, Arcidiano will receive funds for lost wages as well as therapy and money to help him relocate from Colorado Springs, where he says he no longer feels safe. He's the general manager of a melting pot in the Springs. He hopes to work at another location of the chain after he moves. Survivors will receive checks from this latest disbursement early next week, according to Kaufman. Vance says the wait for money has been difficult. After the initial disbursement that helped family fly in for the funeral, about two months passed before she received help again. It's a terrible experience, she says. To say that they want to collect money, accept donations for the families and the survivors, and then turn around and we have to pretty much beg for a dollar. She adds that she's exhausted from the work she's had to do to access money raised in her son's name. Regardless of how I feel emotionally, mentally, physically, I have to get up and leave my house to go and fight for something that is already supposed to be for us, Vance says. Because my son is not here anymore, he can't speak for himself. So I have to be the one to be his voice. Arcidiano says he knows other Club Q survivors who are doing worse than he is mentally and financially. So even though advocating for the money is stressful, he wants to step up for others who need it. The community the survivors have built together helps. They have a Facebook group and had a six-month reunion to mark the occasion. It's been somewhat of a healing therapy for me to just be around other people that are going through this just to be able to be connected with the people that my son was around in his last moments, Vance says. She will always remember Raymond as a great big brother who was kind and loving, wanting to help anyone who needed it. Although she's found some of his spirit in the community of survivors, it's been bittersweet, she says. She wishes she had met them for a different reason. 
Vance advises anyone impacted by a mass tragedy to have someone close to them start a fund rather than rely on a system that could be slow or create large accounting burden. Kaufman says that CHF will review the lessons learned when it ends its ongoing Club Q response. We are going to do a debrief with our partners, with our board, the advisory group that assisted us in Colorado Springs, and walk through the things that happened and what we would do, if anything, differently, she notes. The money held in reserve will be used for ongoing needs related to emotional and mental health, as well as any potential physical complications that could still arise, including housing adaptations precluded by certain injuries, she says. Funds can also be used to bring families out for the anniversary of the shooting or important moments in the lives of those who were killed, such as birthdays. To access those funds, people need to request them through their community partner, whether that's COVA or the Community Health Partnership. Arcediano has learned that community counts most when tragedy strikes. I have changed immeasurably since I started this journey, he says. It's brought me closer to my community. It has made me stronger with my community. I have a better understanding and a better sense of what it is to be an LGBTQIA affiliate and somebody in the community. The pain will always be there. That will never change. That pain will always be there. But you need to keep moving even when it feels like you're stuck in the same time, the same moment, and the same place when it happened. Denver will clear low-level arrest warrants at Saturday's Fresh Start by Benito L. Kelty. Imagine being pulled over for a speeding ticket, then ending up in cuffs and behind bars because you didn't know you had an active arrest warrant. Or maybe you're one of those Denver residents who's already aware that you're on the cop's radar, but you avoid going to court for fear of being thrown in jail or losing your job. You and other such scofflaws can rest easy for a day at least, thanks to the city's first ever Fresh Start event this Saturday, July 8th, at the Denver Assessment Intake and Diversion, AID, Center at 1370 Alati Street. From 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. tomorrow, people will be able to come downtown to clear any low-level arrest warrants that they already know about or simply find out whether they have any without the risk of being tossed in the clink. The city and county of Denver will be resolving warrants for misdemeanors, Denver city code violations, and probation violations, which often fly under the radar and cause residents to stay away from authorities and court proceedings, despite the fact that these crimes carry lesser punishments. That's scary for someone, acknowledges Carolyn Tyler, Fresh Start spokesperson. Someone, someone may not even know that they have an active warrant, and then they get pulled over for something else and find their day has radically changed. For other people who know they have an active warrant, a lot of people, unfortunately, go into the shadows. We don't want people in the shadows. We want people to come out of the shadows and do the right thing, clear their warrant, resolve their case, and get back on track. A group from Denver Pretrial Services will be at this inaugural event to determine whether warrants are eligible to be cleared. Individuals will also be able to talk with defense attorneys and a Denver County judge will be present. Say an unknown warrant comes up, maybe from a judge issuing an arrest for not appearing in court after failing to pay a ticket and some court-ordered fees, or perhaps for violating probation. The subject of the warrant will be able to talk to the judge and possibly resolve the situation. 
and if a warrant isn't eligible to be resolved, the individual will be allowed to leave. No arrests will be made, regardless of eligibility, Tyler says. Neither felonies nor domestic violence offenses will be cleared at the event, according to officials. Warrants also won't be cleared if they are for violating Colorado's Victims' Rights Act, which protects victims of violent crimes from intimidation, harassment, and abuse. In addition to basic misdemeanors, people will also be able to potentially resolve warrants for violations against Denver City codes, like defacing property, curfew violations, disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace, trespassing, open alcohol container violations, and non-alcohol traffic violations, among other things. The offenses must be misdemeanors or city code violations that happened in the city and county of Denver. The types of warrants that are eligible for clearing run the gamut of possible charges. It's not that we expect to have a groundswell of this kind of offender or that kind of offender, Tyler says. It'll be across the board. People who are on probation and report to either a county or city court in Denver can also potentially clear any warrants caused by violating the terms of their probation, which can include failing to report to their supervising officer or missing court-ordered payments. The judge present at the event will decide how the case can be resolved, whether by paying a fine or setting a new date to appear in court. Warrant resolution will be on a case-by-case basis, Taylor, Tyler says. The idea of the Fresh Start program is to ultimately get you back on track, either with your case at a specific court or if you've fallen off with probation, she tells Westward. There are so many cases that are just languishing, she explains. They can't advance. They're just open and on the books with no activity. So we can get the person accused of the crime to appear in court or have their case resolved some other way. Tyler advises that people bring some kind of photo ID and the case number for their outstanding warrant, if they know it, to the Fresh Start event. Although this is a first for Denver, similar events across the country have seen individuals clear their records. These are cases that can't advance because a person didn't show up to court, for example, so now there's a warrant for their arrest, she says. These would be people who have not been found guilty of anything and we just need to get these cases resolved. People might be named as defendants in a misdemeanor case that happened months or even years ago, but they're not arrested until the warrant comes up during a simple traffic stop. Police are supposed to arrest you for something that you may not even realize you had to tidy up with court two years ago. That's not a prospect we like. We want to resolve these cases and get them handled, Tyler concludes. PT's show club busted for allowing prostitution could lose licenses by Katie Cheshire. The performers at PT's show club at 1601 West Evans Avenue may have been doing a bit more than dancing in recent months, according to city documents. An order to show cause issued by the Denver Department of Excise and Licenses on July 3rd outlines how the Denver Police Department conducted a sting operation at the RCI Hospitality-owned strip joint on March 31st and found that the establishment broke 10 different laws at the state and local levels related to prostitution and public indecency. The Denver City Attorney's Office requested that excise and licenses pursue disciplinary action against PTs after the DPD conducted its sting operation. 
The order to show cause says the investigation was spurred by an anonymous tip in January that employees of PT's show club were offering to perform sexual acts in exchange for money and that the younger dancers were actively pressured into having sexual intercourse for money by older members of the club. When an undercover officer went to the club as part of the sting, he was approached by a dancer who allegedly asked if he was a cop and then proceeded to offer him sex services. After a brief discussion, during which the dancer asked the undercover officer whether he was in fact a police officer, the dancer offered and agreed to have sex with the officer in exchange for $600, recounts the show cause order. Upon reaching this agreement, the dancer indicated that they would have to move to a separate room inside the club in order to have sex. Asking if someone is a police officer can be considered evidence of soliciting prostitution. After the agreement was made, the undercover cop gave the bust signal and uniformed officers entered PTs to arrest the dancer for prostitution. While authorities were coming in, another stripper walked up to one of the cops and fondled his genitals without warning leading to public indecency charges that were resolved by the city's attorney's office through a guilty plea for disturbing the peace. Local and state law both prohibit prostitution, though the state level is more specific about how establishments can and can't conduct business. No strip joint licensed in Colorado the way PT's show club is currently licensed may allow anyone to perform sexual intercourse, masturbation, sodomy, sodomy, bestiality, oral copulation, flagellation, or any sexual acts which are prohibited by law. And it's not just those who perform those acts who can get into trouble. Those who have control of the place where the prostitution occurs can face charges as well. Anyone who knowingly grants or permits the use of such place for the purpose of prostitution or permits the continued use of such place for the purpose of prostitution after becoming aware of facts or circumstances from which he should reasonably know that the place is being used for purposes of prostitution is keeping a place of prostitution, the law states. That's illegal in Colorado. The show cause order was sent to the club's manager, Matthew Donnellan, along with Eric Langan, the president of RCI Hospitality Holdings, PT's parent company. The strip joint is one of the many nightclub brands currently operated by RCI Hospitality, and Denver is listed on RCI's website as one of the company's larger units. The parties must appear at a show cause hearing on August 10th to prove to the city why PT's on West Evans should not have its adult cabaret and tavern liquor licenses suspended or revoked. It could also reach a stipulation with Denver officials before the hearing. PT's has made headlines in the past with former owner, Troy Lowry, who sold the chain in 2021, busted in a 2011 prostitution sting, the charges were dropped, and its dancers allegedly getting ripped off by an illegal system that charged them to perform and forced them to cover other employees' earnings out of the tips they received. There have also been violent incidents both inside and outside the club. In the late 60s, the building in which the strip club is housed was home to Denver's short-lived but legendary music venue, The Family Dog, which hosted such iconic acts as Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and The Grateful Dead. PT's show club did not immediately respond to a request for comment. 
GoFundMe started for Parker family after home destroyed by neighbor's fireworks by Benjamin Neufeld. More than $10,000 has been raised for a family in Parker through a GoFundMe campaign after their home was destroyed in an early morning fire on Tuesday, July 4th that was sparked by improperly discarded fireworks, according to local officials. Initially, neighbor Tiffany Kemp hoped to raise $5,000 for the Rossi family, Adam and Hannah Rossi, a couple in their early 30s who live on Kimball Street in Parker's Clark Farms neighborhood with their young daughter, and created the GoFundMe for them over the holiday. I just immediately knew that we had to get something going, Kemp tells Westward. Within four hours, it was already close to that. Blown away by the show of support, she doubled the goal to $10,000, and then again to 20000 as more and more donations poured in. We're all just heartbroken for them, she says of the Rossies. According to South Metro Fire Rescue, SMFR, the family's home went up in flames just after midnight in a blaze that was caused by the improper disposal of legal fireworks in a plastic bin outside the garage. Kemp says the Rossies' next-door neighbor, an older woman and a fairly new addition to the neighborhood, had been setting off fireworks earlier in the evening, and it was the one who reportedly disposed of them improperly. Her house was also destroyed in the fire. She just went and put them in a trash can when she was done, Kemp says. Fire officials told the Denver Post that the fireworks had been placed in a recycling bin, saying that the neighbor thought that because the firework had gone off and had been used, that it was cool enough to throw in the trash and be safe. Kemp and her family were asleep when the fire broke out. Our daughter's window faces the street, she says. She heard a boom and looked over and saw that the house next door to the Rossi home was already going up. She ran into our room and told us, and then we ran over. One police officer was already at the scene by the time the Kemp family made it outside, and the situation was spiraling out of control. The wind had just picked up right when it happened, and it was already blowing embers and stuff over in the roofs of the houses nearby, and just bouncing off them, Kemp says. For a second, I was very concerned that the whole block was going to go. By the time things calmed down, five houses in the area had embers on their roofs or in their yards, including some on the Kemp's property. Firefighters arrived at the scene within five minutes of Kemp getting there. According to SMFR, the firefighters' efforts prevented the fire from spreading to three other homes. No injuries were reported besides a minor burn for one firefighter. It was scary, Kemp recounts. It was really scary. Kemp and her family have lived in Parker for the past 13 years after moving from Texas. We have a great neighborhood, she says, of Clark Farms. We're such a close community. Our street is one of those streets where you just hope you can have a community like that. We're all great friends. According to Kemp, the Rossi family moved in about five years ago, just before the birth of their daughter. They're amazing, she says. They've worked hard. They're young. They've got a home. And they're building a life. And now they have to start over. Kemp doesn't know much about the woman next door, as she's only been living in the neighborhood for a few months. Nobody really knows her, Kemp says. She left at about 3 a.m. that morning while everything was still going on, and we haven't seen or heard from her since. The Parker Police Department and South Metro Fire Rescue did not immediately respond to requests for comments. 
Meanwhile, the Rossies have been staying at Adam Rossi's parents' house, according to Kemp. They're still in kind of shock and trying to process everything, she says. Kemp has faith that the family will be all right, largely because of the GoFundMe. More than $10,000 had been raised as of 8.30 p.m. Wednesday. They're going to rebuild and come back stronger, she says. It'll be great. First weekend of zero fare for better air was a huge success, says RTD Driver by Katie Cheshire. On a normal Saturday, while driving RTD's 15L bus line, Suna Karabe only gets about 15 to 20 passengers. Often, employees in the hospitality industry headed to cover weekend shifts in downtown Denver. But on July 1st, the first day of RTD's Zero Fare for Better Air program, which is offering two months of free transit, her bus was completely full. I usually know who rides my bus, says Carabay, who's driven for RTD for over a decade. I get the same people, but I even had kids today. They came with their families just to ride the bus. Although she has mixed feelings about the free ride program, having been the subject of a June 2022 Washington Post story by reporter Eli Saslow titled Anger and Heartbreak on Bus Number 15, which described how the pandemic was impacting bus drivers across the country, Carape is feeling positive about what the next two months will bring. Even her regulars seemed happier on Saturday. They were really friendlier, Carape says. They said, smiling, Good morning. The RTD vet has been telling her everyday passengers to save their money from single fares over the next two months so they'll have enough money to buy monthly passes up front in September when the free fares end. Along with helping people save money, she's hoping July and August will bring more kids on her bus and help spread awareness about transit while making it harder for drug users and delinquents to get by unnoticed. I'm really hoping to make it safe on the bus so kids can come, Carabay says. Kids like the big buses. They make happy environments. And I don't want drugs, smoking, weed fumes on the bus. In order to get more youths to ride, she insists that buses need to be safe. And RTD is taking steps toward improving safety, like implementing a new code of conduct last month. Contrary to what some people believe, Carabay doesn't think the free rides cause more people to use drugs on the bus. I had some people complaining, oh, now RTD, it's going to be free and all the drug users are going to be on the bus, she says. We still have the same rules and regulations, and we keep getting training on how to protect the environment we are in. When drivers notice someone using drugs, they are instructed to stop the bus and get a new one that's clean, according to Carabay. This keeps people safe from secondhand inhalation, she says. Carabay and other drivers have become attuned to the signs of when somebody might be using drugs on RTD. One way is if people bring blankets on. They may use them to cover their heads so they can smoke in private. Now, Carabay says, people with blankets must fold them and put them in a bag before they board. Another sign is when other passengers who are at the back of the bus move forward, which can often mean they're moving to avoid a disruptive passenger. We are always on the watch, Carabay says. When I see people moving forward, I just get up and go and see what's going on. Then I open both doors and I tell them they need to leave or I'm going to call the police. She wants more resources for people who are addicts 
but doesn't know if there's much more RTD itself or even the police can do. However, Caribay firmly believes that more passengers riding during July and August will make it less likely that people will use drugs on the bus, since riders often speak up to remind others that using drugs on public transit isn't allowed. That really helps because I am driving 70 people on a bus and I can't see every corner of it, Caribay says. Usually, when it is more quiet and then they get their own space, they start doing it. But when we add more people, I don't have any issues at all. On July 1st, Caribay didn't have any incidents on her shift from 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. In a regular six-day work week, she says she will typically remove three or four people from the bus. Over the years, Caribay has learned which people she needs to keep a closer eye on in the same way she knows her regulars. She knows who has used drugs on her bus before and can often predict when they will come back. This year, Caribay feels more prepared for zero fare for better air than last year because RTD provided more training. If there's a cloud, we need a training for that, she jokes. Although Caribay says rainy weather like Denver has experienced this spring and summer causes more people to get on the bus to avoid getting soaked, drivers are ready for that and any complications that may arise. Passengers, too, are more prepared in the second year of the program, according to Caribay. Zero fare for better air is made possible by a grant from the Colorado Energy Office that's designed to help transit agencies in the state encourage public transportation use during ozone season. Caribay hopes enough people make an honest effort to use the bus and that the program cuts down on traffic in Denver, which she says is worse than ever lately. With two months of free rides ahead, Caribay thinks there's enough time for people to truly adapt. All Europeans ride buses. Why not here, she says. RTD is doing way more than what transportation is supposed to do. We are getting all the training. We are on the job. We are doing our best, and we really want more people to ride. That will help us make the buses safer and the environment cleaner. United We Strand, The Ugly Truth About Beautiful People of Denver by Patricia Calhoun. The beautiful people of Denver are stranded, Nine News' Steve Stager tweeted as the backups began at Denver International Airport this past week. The situation got so bad that United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby just apologized for taking a private plane from New Jersey to Denver on June 28th, a day when United canceled 750 flights, one quarter of its total daily roster. Taking a private jet was the wrong decision because it was insensitive to our customers who were waiting to get home, Kirby said. I sincerely apologize to our customers and our team members who have been working around the clock for several days, often through severe weather, to take care of our customers. Fine. Now it's time for Kirby to apologize for the ad campaign that has the abysmal opening lines of the song, beautiful people of Denver stuck in our heads, adding insult to injury for all of those people still stuck at Denver's airport over this holiday weekend, feeling less beautiful by the day. This spring, just in time for the Denver Nuggets' successful run at the National Basketball Association Championship, United Airlines rolled out an omnipresent TV campaign saluting the Mile High City and the beautiful people of Denver. The photos were great. 
The tune that went with them? Not so much. For reasons known only to United's marketing team, to celebrate its mile-high hub, the airline decided to resurrect one of Meredith Wilson's most obscure and irritating songs from the 1960 musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown, a highly fictionalized account of the life of Margaret Brown, a Denver resident who was indeed on the Titanic and did exhibit unsinkable attitude, but was never actually known as Molly. At one point in the show, members of Denver society are mocking Molly when she and her husband, fresh from Leadville, where Johnny Brown owns the richest mine in the United States, crash a party in the Capitol Hill neighborhood where they are building a home, today the Molly Brown House Museum, and she lauds the beautiful people of Denver. Thankfully, United did not include any lyrics, much less any info on their musical origins, beyond the earworm repetition of the beautiful people line in its commercial. Because these days in Denver, and particularly at the Denver International Airport, where the situation has occasionally gotten tense over the past few days, never a dogfight, never a brawl, just doesn't ring true. So, CEO Kirby, could we please get another apology? Beautiful. The people of Denver, thank you. Flashback to Y2K for One Night Only at the Clock Tower Cabaret by Tony Tresca. In case you didn't get the message on your Nokia mobile phone, the 90s and Y2K are back. When you walk into H&M, everything looks like something from the set of 10 Things I Hate About You, says Melissa Buriak, a director, producer, and booking manager for the 90s and 2000s variety show Flashback to Y2K. Our cabaret is all about showing Gen Z what that time was really like. For one night only at the Clock Tower Cabaret on Sunday, July 9th, singers and dancers from NYC theater production company GPC Entertainment will perform a variety show that showcases high-energy ensemble dance production numbers, singing, tap dancing, circus acts, and burlesque, set to iconic pop songs from the 90s and 2000s. The show itself is what we refer to as a mixtape, says GPC's executive director, Bridget Bose. Anyone who was alive during that time knows about creating a mixtape, so this show reflects that. We've performed this show since 2017, and audiences love it. Flashback to Y2K is a fan favorite and a top seller, so we thought it would be a lot of fun for our homecoming performance in Colorado. Although the troupe is based in New York, several of the company members are originally from Colorado. Bridget and I are best friends from high school, says GPC's artistic director, Andrea Polish. We grew up in Colorado dancing together at Miller's Dance Studio, and this show is a huge throwback to the songs and the music that we grew up listening to. Bridget and I met Katerina Lott, GPC's rehearsal director, on a Bollywood tour, and we bonded because she was wearing a Boulder shirt. We approached her and said, let's be friends. And shortly after that, the three of us started GPC Entertainment. 
The founders started the company to foster an inclusive environment of creativity, personal expression, and community through live performances, events, and educational programming that increases accessibility to the performing arts for both audiences and artists, says Bose. When GPC first started performing in 2014, it was a relatively intimate group. GPC has grown from five performers to a roster of over 50 artists spread out across the United States, Buryak says. We now have six full-length themed variety shows and have created hundreds of songs and dances that we refurbish for various performances. During COVID, we shifted all of our in-person shows to virtual platforms and did some outdoor performances. We're still experimenting with this hybrid model where we will put on live performances in New York that can be live streamed literally anywhere. GPC has been in a constant state of evolution. We're constantly growing and looking for creative new ways to bring our mission to different markets. GPC has performers all over the world and touring productions give the troupe more chances to meet new people. Bose claims that the upcoming flashback to Y2K performance at the Clock Tower Cabaret will be a reunion in more ways than one. Many of us haven't performed together since the pandemic, Bose says. During COVID, we all had major life shifts because the entertainment industry was shut down. Many of us changed careers or moved out of New York City and are scattered all over the world. So this is a really great opportunity for us to come together and get to perform again. This show also has a hometown reunion feel to it because of a lot of our friends and families in Colorado who we haven't seen since the 90s will be coming to the show. Flashback to Y2K is directed and produced by Palish, Bose, and Buriak, with music direction by Annie Esther and Vinnie Esther and performances by Palish, Bose, Lott, Buriak, Camille Brach, Melissa Grace Becker, Melissa Camarada, Queen Irene and Shannon McGee. The show has really witty burlesque, crazy tap dancing, and a light show with dancers that you have to see in person to believe, Palesh says. What we're really known for is group ensemble dance numbers in a variety of different dance styles. So get ready to see hip-hop, contemporary, jazz, and musical theater. You name it, we like to showcase it. Classics from the 90s and 2000s will be performed live by Melissa Grace Becker while the dancers bust a move. This is not a sit-down-and-shut-up kind of show, Bales says. We want people to have fun and go crazy with us. I hate to date ourselves, but Bridget and I are having our 20th high school reunion this summer, and so I feel like there's something extra nostalgic for us about revisiting the music and pop culture icons that inspired us to become professional performers. And as someone who has been involved with Flashback to Y2K since its debuted in 2017, it has been really cool to see it develop further and be able to share our influences with the next generation of dancers and audiences. Flashback to Y2K, Sunday, July 9th, Clock Tower Cabaret, 1601 Arapahoe Street. Find tickets, times, and more information at gpc-entertainment.com. Women-owned wine bar, Wolf Plus Wildflower debuts in Wheat Ridge July 8th by Gina Parker. Just inside the doorway at 7190 West 38th Avenue in Wheat Ridge is a neon sign with the Tom Petty lyric, You Belong Among the Wildflowers. 
The space is the home of a new women-run winery, Wolf Plus Wildflower, which opens July 8th. Owners Tamara McTavish and Sarah Galloway have been balancing their full-time day jobs and full-time motherhood as they worked on the project. The duo have been friends for over a decade, working in the corporate world and dreaming about bringing West 38th Avenue back to its former community-centric glory. I think we are really trying to get this space back, not just Wolf plus Wildflower, but the whole street, says Galloway. The space was formerly known as Audacity Lounge, and when she saw it was up for grabs, she and McTavish jumped at the opportunity. In just three short months, the friends have transformed the 1,600-square-foot space. Drawing inspiration from McTavish's husband's bar, the well-known Rocky Top Tavern, Wolf Plus Wildflower incorporates both feminine and masculine attributes to create a welcoming ambience, and its 45-square-foot open-air patio is an ideal place for people watching in the neighborhood. The bar has Carboy Winery Vino on tap, along with over 70 options from other producers available by the bottle or glass. We want to offer people the more obscure wines you can't get at the grocery or liquor store. If you're someone looking to come in and get a nice glass or, glass or finish off a bottle, we will have wine curated for you, says McTavish. We really want to have offerings for people that don't know that much about wine, and they can trust that they can come in and get a nice glass. We also have some higher-end offerings for people looking for that, too. Beyond the wine itself, McTavish and Galloway had a larger goal in mind when designing the space. We have a women bar manager, a women kitchen manager, and, of course, us. So we are really proud for making a space not only for moms like us, but for women to come and hang out, McTavish says. While focusing mostly on wine, Wolf Plus Wildflower also offers select beers and small plates that you can also enjoy, solo or share with friends, including charcuterie boards and jarcuterie or snacks served in jars. A bottomless mimosa brunch is also in the works, which will include eats from bonfire burritos and specials like avocado toast and classic fruit and whipped cream topped waffles. Wolf Plus Wildflower is located at 7190 West 38th Avenue in Wheat Ridge, and it will be open from noon to 10 p.m. on July 8th and noon to 7 p.m. on July 9th. After that, its hours will be 4 to 9 p.m. Tuesday through Thursday, 3 to 10 p.m. Friday, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Saturday, and 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Sunday. For more information, visit wolfandwildflower.com. Chipotle will close all Pizzeria Locale locations on July 10th by Molly Martin. For a decade, Pizzeria Locale has been a local favorite for quick, affordable, customizable pies. But after July 10th, the brand will no longer exist. According to a statement from Lori Shalo, Chief Corporate Affairs Officer for Chipotle Mexican Grill, we have made the decision to close all five Pizzeria Locale restaurants on July 10th and dissolve the business. Impacted employees have been extended employment opportunities at Chipotle restaurants in the Denver area. Boulder's Pizzeria Locale was transformed earlier this year into Pizzeria Alberico. That location was the original, original Pizzeria Locale. Bobby Stuckey and Lachlan McKinnon-Patterson, 
The team behind one of the state's best fine dining restaurants, Frosca Food and Wine, opened the Neapolitan Pizzeria with a wood-fired oven next door in 2011. Pizzeria Locale was a fast hit, so people were rightfully excited when it arrived in Denver, opening at 550 Broadway a decade ago. But this location was different. It was a fast, casual spin-off of the original that happened to be located in a strip mall that was also home to a Chipotle. Eventually, news broke that the Denver-born company-turned-fast-casual giant had quietly partnered with the Frosca team on a plan to grow Pizzeria Locale. While Frosca Hospitality Group, FHG, retained ownership of the original in Boulder, the Pizzeria Locale locations that followed fell under the Chipotle umbrella, though Stuckey and McKinnon Patterson were still involved. The chain expanded, adding an outpost in the Highland neighborhood in 2014. It also opened out-of-the-state locations in Cincinnati and Kansas City, but in 2018, the decision was made to shut those in order to better focus on growth in our hometown of Denver, McKinnon Patterson said at the time. After that, Pizzeria Locale added locations in Central Park and at the 9th Avenue and Colorado Boulevard complex. In January, the 5th opened in Greenwood Village, but the big Chipotle-like expansion never came, and now the brand is disappearing altogether. Chipotle did not reply to a request for comment on why the call was made to close the stores. An FHG spokesperson confirms that neither Stuckey nor McKinnon Patterson has been involved in Pizzeria Locale's day-to-day operations for about a year. Last December, FHG announced that it would be temporarily closing the original Pizzeria Locale in Boulder for a rebrand. The refreshed space debuted in February as Pizzeria Alberico, after the maiden name of Stuckey's wife, Danette. It was her family that originally brought the couple to Boulder, and the concept is an homage to them as well as the city of Naples. While the Pizzeria Alberico menu is more upscale than that of Pizzeria Locale, there are a few nods to its predecessor in pies like the Diavola, made with salami picante instead of pepperoni. There's a version of the popular Mayus, too, topped with creme fraiche, corn, and pancetta rather than ham. The price point at Pizzeria Alberico is rightfully higher, but if you're craving similar flavors that have been stepped up by an award-winning team, a visit to Boulder is in order. Otherwise, get your Pizzeria Locale fix while you can. The Eagles announce final tour, Stop in Colorado, by Westward Staff. Prolific classic rock band The Eagles will retire after a just-announced final tour, Aptly titled The Long Goodbye, the run begins September 7th in New, in New York and is expected to last until 2025. The band has announced 13 shows so far, with a stop at Denver's Ball Arena on Thursday, October 5th. The last time the Eagles toured was in 2015, but they haven't played in Denver since 2013. On the tour, the Eagles will be joined by Steely Dan. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.